G'day, it's Phil Edwards, Vision CEO here, with a quick invitation to become part of this amazing beacon of hope called Vision. Together we can put our love into action to help people of all kinds build or rebuild their lives on the truth of God. Please consider the part you can play during our upcoming Visionathon appeal, remembering that it's your support that makes Vision possible, including this podcast. Life, Culture and Current Events from a Biblical Perspective, 2020 on Vision. Uh, We're going to talk about alcoholism. Well, in Australia, we have this very serious ongoing issue with alcohol addiction. And those who work in the health and welfare sectors are desperate to initiate real change against the debilitating effects of alcohol, which permeates really every level of our society, while being celebrated, encouraged, and even revered for most everyday Aussies. Frighteningly, for every ice-related death, which grabs the headlines time and time again, there is said to be a staggering 60 alcohol-related deaths. Our special guest on 2020 today is fighting against what she calls this accepted everyday monster in our midst. Shanna Wan is a photojournalist, a health consultant, and is on the rise as a motivational speaker because she has an amazing story to tell. She lives in the rural town of Narrabri in New South Wales with her husband Tim and their best mate Fleabag the Blue Healer. Our vision team came across Shanna when she shared her testimony on stage at the recent Come Together Namoy event, which was held in Narrabri. Her story is one of battling alcohol addiction. It's taken her a long time to walk to freedom from hitting rock bottom, but now Shanna plans to take her personal story across rural Australia. A special welcome to 2020 to you, Shanna Wan. Hey, Neil, how are you today? I'm very well, Shanna. Thanks so much for being available. And it is quite courageous to be able to uh, accept an invitation to come on the radio and and talk about your story. And so I want to honour you right from the beginning. Thanks so much for taking some time to talk about drinking alcohol, of being an alcoholic and uh, or someone who is recovering from alcoholism. How do you describe yourself these days? Because we'll talk about the before and we'll talk about the after, but how do you describe yourself today? Yeah, that's a great question, Neil. Um, I describe myself as the perfect example, I think, of an imperfect person who was saved through grace and through a miracle. Um, I describe myself as a, an extremely typical scenario of a high-functioning modern-day alcoholic, for want of a better better word. And, um, you know, I don't, I don't think for a moment there's anything particularly unique or uh, special about me as a person, but what is incredibly special is that I was able to be uh, set free from something that was most definitely on its way to killing me. <laughs> um, you know, I truly, I don't think I would have made um, my 42nd birthday um, the rate things were progressing for me. So I, I guess I would describe myself as, very blessed and very fortunate and um, and I'm in exactly the right place right here and right now because of what has happened and I, I actually I actually uh, strangely enough I think I'm very lucky mm-hmm. <laughs> if that makes any sense it does and Shanna you are a country girl and one yeah. of the one of the dimensions we want to be able to 
uh, talk about in our conversation today is the fact that it's often more difficult uh, if you're battling against alcohol if you live in the country than if you live in the city. And you've got a few thoughts on that and uh, of course the opportunity today to invite listeners to participate in our conversation they might have their own thoughts so our talkback lines open on 1-800-316-316 if you'd like to join in our conversation you might have your own thoughts on whether it is more difficult fighting alcoholism if you are in the country than if you're in the city if you're in the city you might have an argument against that and say oh surely it's got to be easier in the country well uh, what are your thoughts 1-800-316-316 we'll talk about that in just a few moments about this difference between city and country Shanna but let me just ask you to set a bit of a scene for us if you reflect on your younger years and the type of young woman that you were and the type of things that were going on in your life that actually brought you to a point where you realized you had a problem with alcohol describe those early years for us yeah, for sure, Neil. And again, I think I'm a great example um, of how easily um, this this disease can happen to any one of us. Um, a lot of people who get to final stage addiction have a really, really horrible backstory um, and some tragedy from you know younger years upwards. And I think the first thing I'll say is that addiction usually begins with a traumatic event. Um, for me personally. I grew up in an incredibly, incredibly loving, nurturing environment with um, a, an older brother and a mum and dad who adored me and loved me and provided very, very, oh gosh, very adequately in every single way, you know, and that included um, wonderful education opportunities all the way through my younger years. Um, I, I grew up as a, um, a bush kid, I guess you would say, in northwest New South Wales, actually um, near a tiny town called Colorenebra. Um, and my father managed a cotton property. Um, you know, so the backdrop to my life was, a, I guess, I, I sort of used the word free range. I was a free range country kid, you know. I rode horses. Oh, gosh, I played with dogs. I had chooks. Yep. <laughs> I was a really happy, vibrant kid. I had a beautiful childhood. Um, and, and I suppose how things progressed to me, like so, you know, someone listening might think, well, hang on, well, that sounds pretty fantastic. What excuse do you have? Well... You know, the truth is, this is a 25-year story in the making. Um, for me, I went off to boarding school when I was very, very young, and that was probably the first um, uh, thing, I suppose you would say, that sort of set me off kilter a little. I was a terribly homesick kid. I did not like boarding school whatsoever. Um, you know, there were good aspects to it, and for sure it was an amazing um, uh, education. But the environment for me was very... Ah, uh, crushing. You know, I was I was just a home, I was just a homebody. I was a kid who was comfortable out in the paddock on the back of a horse. You know, <laughs> and suddenly here I was in a in a very 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 overwhelming environment. And I just I sort of found myself going, "Hang on, what's this all about? This is difficult." <laughs> mm. You know, and I guess my exterior demeanour began to change then. And uh, but I I would say I'm very typical of regional. Uh, rural Australian kids. I went on to attend a university. You know, I went on to have a gap year and I worked out in a regional setting and I went on to work in agriculture. So that particular story is really quite typical of, gosh, so many of my friends who do grow up in a rural environment. Um, 
I would say what isn't typical is what happened uh, to me in particular. And um, I don't know whether as a consequence of my boarding school experience, I didn't have much self-confidence. I had um, I was quite a fearful uh, kid after school and I had no social skills. And I just, I suppose I was very desperate for people to um, like me. I just wanted to fit in. And that would lead to me, I guess... Um, I don't know, not functioning in self-confidence and, uh, I mean, I don't know that many kids that are self-confident, mind you, but I was, I was easily led, uh, I was easily swayed by the opinions of others and in my gap year um, out of boarding school, uh, between boarding school and university, I, I did some work on regional properties and, um, look, that was really, I think, the beginning of a disaster in my life because, unfortunately, not once, but about four times I had, uh, unfortunately, experiences of sexual abuse at the hands of employers. And um, as a young kid who was already feeling a little bit um, wobbly, I guess, in my own identity, that did a huge amount of damage, which I think I think the after effects of that are still being felt today. I think I've only just really come to terms with a lot of it. I mean, that's Pretty crazy. That's twenty five odd years later, Shannon. But, um, it's it's like you say. Uh, there's often times some traumatic events that happen in our younger yes, years that absolutely. create some sort of triggers for uh, for you know people used to talk about mm. the idea of drowning your sorrows. But when you're hurt, yes. uh, when you're abused, uh, sometimes alcohol is is your close friend. Yes, exactly. And um, you know the rural theme is that. Um, Look, country kids know how to party. <laughs> we don't have a lot to do. So um, uh, I'll just tie that in, I suppose, with, um, you know, there I was. Um, uh, I'd, I'd come through a period of tremendous trauma. I was very confused. I was very vulnerable. I was very young. And suddenly my perfect beginning to life took a pretty nasty turn. And uh, when the opportunity presented itself, I actually went off to university and all this damage and um, abuse had occurred. Um, off I went to university and suddenly there was this fabulous uh, environment where I was accepted and loved and if not quite popular all of a sudden out of nowhere and uh, the party culture emerged and I'd not seen this before because my family was actually reasonably um, not social, you know, we didn't have a lot of parties and things like that so I, I got a little bit excited and thought, well, this is fun and it was amazing how quickly the celebration of alcohol in university life um, emerged as a fabulous way for me to not deal with the things that were very deeply lodged into my heart and my soul. And um, country kids, I would have to say, across the board, are almost expected to be a bit wild, quote-unquote. Um, that seems to be a reputation we take with us. Um, that's a, quite a sweeping statement, but you, you've probably heard that yourself. It's, um, I don't know, we're capable, we're tough, you know, we, we can do... <laughs> all that sort of thing. And um, people sort of started to label me as this wild and crazy party girl from the country. And I just thought, well, okay, if that's what I am, that's what I shall be. And uh, okay, yeah, so I, um, I, The wild and I crazy party girl yeah. from the country. And yeah. you were introduced into the party culture in university. And part of that party culture, of course, is a binge drinking culture. And right. you, I guess, uh, you got caught up in that. Hundred percent, I did. Um, it was a, it was a two-edged sword, really, because first, you know, coming from such a lockdown, very very strict boarding school environment, which it was back then, 
and into this sudden freedom, I was just completely, completely ill-equipped for any of it. So, you know, a couple of those things going on and adding into the mix a bit of um, stress and or post-traumatic stress probably. Um, and it was just a cocktail, a complete disaster, pardon the pun. And um, it was, you know, me going to uni was probably a bit like a lamb going to slaughter because um, I was just, I was almost prepped and ready to be going down that exact path. And the binge drinking culture is, is completely, even now today, it's, oh gosh, it hasn't changed. It's exactly the same. And so I believe that vulnerable kids and vulnerable members of society will fall into that culture, particularly if it helps them to, you know, deal with something that they're having a lot of trouble facing. And for me, it was the most fabulous, readily available, cheap, fun self-medication that I'd ever seen. And, uh, you know, I just went into it blindly at 100 miles an hour because it was a lot easier than dealing with what was going on in my heart and my soul, which I see in hindsight, you know, I was very broken at a young age. And um, alcohol really (laughs) took that away and um, gave me a sense, and I'll use the word sense very heavily, of course, gave me a sense of freedom. It enabled me to go forward, you know. Let's talk about the wild country party girl uh, having the time of her life in a binge drinking culture. And there is a time uh, in the in the times ahead of that when the crunch comes. And uh, as I reflect on your story, you developed an eating disorder and things started to go downhill really rapidly. Uh, what were the things were happening there that that triggered the downhill uh, slippery slope that uh, that tended to uh, to take you to into into anxiety and despair? Yeah, sure, Neil. Um, yeah, look, all of these things go hand in hand. I would have to say, um, often a trauma will trigger um, a self-destructive behaviour, and that will often lead to other self-destructive behaviour. It's it's like a little series of things that love to live together and fester in the same petri dish, you know. Um, unfortunately for me, um, halfway through my university, I uh, I met an incredibly charming, good-looking fellow who uh, was also very mentally, I guess, unwell, is probably the best way to say it, a fellow who was emotionally abusive and also physically abusive. And um, he he charmed me. So much. He was an extremely um, powerful, charismatic character, and and I suppose that pattern of abuse popped up again. And during the process of the time I spent with this um, gentleman, I unfortunately, yeah, developed an eating disorder because he, um, the implication constantly was that I was not good enough. Um, he would sort of um, look from what I can understand about people who are emotionally abusive. They control people through fear and manipulation and so forth, and um, that was certainly the pattern that emerged in that period of my life. And uh, I did become fearful. I did further um, go down the road of thinking, I'm not good enough, I'm not pretty enough, I'm not slim enough, I'm not anything enough. So now into the picture on top of the previous abuse comes self-harm thoughts, um, you know, eating disorders, um, and the anxiety began to increase. So probably by about the age of... Oh, gee whiz, 25, I realised I was, uh, like, I just knew I wasn't okay, but I wasn't equipped to go beyond that knowledge, if that makes sense. I, was, I, was, I knew things were not going well at that point. Helping you make sense of life, culture and current events from a biblical perspective. 2020 on Vision. 
I mentioned that our vision team came across Shanna Wan when she shared her testimony on stage at the recent Come Together Namoy event that was held in Narrabri. Well, Shanna is our guest today and we are talking through a topic, the true face of everyday alcoholism from country to coast in Australia. Shanna, you've explored some of those things in your early years and into university, a binge drinking culture and a downward spiral and a whole lot of things that triggered that. And you realised that you were having this difficulty, this challenge, this problem with alcohol. Uh, Let's move into uh, an understanding of what it brought when you began to see a turnaround. You'd met a new man, a new man came into your life, uh, who would eventually become your husband, Tim. Tell us about your, your Christian testimony. For sure. Thank you, Neil. And I probably just should proceed this section by saying, you know, in my early 20s, I, I must confess, I thought I was very typical of um, a binge drinking culture person. I didn't really get my head around the fact that it would be a problem probably till a little bit later than that because it is so widely accepted. But the person who made me, I guess, realise that this actually was not okay was the guy I married, (laughs) Timbo, who's listening, probably. And... um, Look, a very long story short is I, um, Tim and I connected when I was about 30 and um, I think, ironically enough, despite all of the horrible abuse and things that had happened to me, I still somehow had managed to be a bit of a heartbreaker in the sense that I've never allowed anybody close and some very good people came and went in my life in between all those other stories but I just simply, well, the pattern was to push away as soon as somebody got close. So the, the great irony of, of what happened next was I met this fellow and, uh, look, call me a silly, a silly girl, but <laughs> I think when I saw Tim smile, um, I instantly recognised a very, very, very good man and I decided then and there that this is the bloke I was going to marry. <laughs> no better way to freak a guy right out, hey? <laughs> anyway, I didn't tell him that at the time. <laughs> So, um, <clears throat> please excuse my voice, I've been fighting a flu. Um, anyway, so I, I, I met this fellow and <clears throat> from there would would come about a five-year period of I would call the most dysfunctional courting phase ever for two people. It was not a fairy tale romance by any means because um, this beautiful man, Tim, um, he says now that he knew quite quickly I was an exceptional woman and that he definitely wanted to love me, but he was terrified of this crazy self-destructive personality that would emerge after alcohol. And probably one of the first um, significant discussions we had in our relationship was basically, oh, hold back there, Shen, you're a great girl, but I don't know about this, whatever this thing is that happens when you drink, that's not going to work. And I guess he was the first person who therefore, by default, made me unwillingly look deeper at what was going on, if that makes sense. Yep. So Tim had always been a little bit religious too. Yeah, look, he came from a family that believed in God. I guess a typical country family who went to church at Easter and at Christmas and on special occasions and had very good morals. 
um, at that stage of our relationship. I wouldn't say Tim was a Christian, but I'd say he was a, a really good man with very good morals who probably would have explored Christianity earlier had somebody kind of explained it a little better. But he was, yeah, I would say he's always been a man of God. Yes. And together, back in 2009, you both mm-hmm. committed your lives to Christ. Yes. And look, I, I just, if there's someone out there listening today who's maybe teetering on the edge of, of thinking, gosh, something's got to change, something's got to give, maybe I'll give this God thing a go, I'm the first to admit that religion, or I, I don't actually call it religion, I Christianity is what I call what I do, um, which I can explain further if necessary, but um, it was a last resort to me. <laughs> Isn't that terrible? I, I went through a period in my 20s where I tried everything um, from new age hocus pocus to fortune tellers to, oh gosh, self-help books, exercise, oh gosh, whatever you can think of. I, I tried everything and lo and behold, nothing changed. I might get a bit of relief for five minutes, but really at the end of the day, I was com- completely, you know, progressing back to the same place of hopelessness and despair. And um in the background, over the course of my life, there were two people who had been really trying so hard for a long, long time to speak about Jesus with me, to which I was pretty blunt and rude and <laughs> consistently said, look, I love you guys, but don't talk to me about that stuff. You know I'm not interested. Anyway, that was my beautiful brother, Adam, and his wife, Lizzie, who have been, um, gosh, Christians for I don't even know how long, forever, really. And they were gently trying from far away for a long time to just try and try and softly um, bring me to a place of understanding. But I resisted and fought tooth and nail against all of that because my boarding school experience had put me off religion so horribly. I felt it was a fearful, heavy, um, scary thing. Um, my experiences of having religion shoved down my throat as a young kid <laughs> There was no appeal in it whatsoever. It was a scary thing, you know? And then, thankfully, one day, I can't remember now if it was my brother or his wife, is that, you know, they sat down and they said, Sam, do you actually understand the difference between Christianity and religion? And I said, well, no, they're the same. To which they said, well, no, they're not. <laughs> Christianity is, is really about being simply more Christ-like, you know? and um, looking at what Jesus did for us. And um, I don't know, look, they just explained it in such a way that um, they um, they took the heaviness out of the religion and explained that fear and, and, and legal sort of ramifications and so on and so forth were not part of what a loving God had in store for us. And that Shanna, we're going to have to... We're going to have to take a little break and go to our news. And uh, don't like to interrupt at such a great point, but uh, we're just hearing a wonderful testimony. We'll continue our conversation and we'll talk more about alcohol and the challenge that it is in the country and in the bush coming up after Vision National News. Our special guest is Shana one. Uh, just a special note, a Facebook message from Alice who says, I have a very similar story to Shanna. However, I grew up in the party culture of the country town and just right that drinking was what everyone did. I didn't know how to reconcile it with my faith though. 
It took over a decade for me to break free of the cycle of destructive drinking. God is good. We were hearing something of your Christian testimony in our last segment just before the news, Shanna. When Mm -hmm. you came to faith in Christ, things began to change very dramatically for you. Yeah, look, and Alice's post, which is great. Thank you, by the way, Alice, um, is exactly right. Um, Sorry, exactly relatable for me, I should say. Um, I I don't know if I'd say it changed quickly, but I'll I'll give a bit of context there. Um, You know, I I never, ever envisaged that I would become a Christian uh, in a million years. But how it sort of began was my husband pointing out to me, hey, you know, basically this this is pretty wrong. What's going on here? And I really wanted to be a better person for him because I was madly in love with him. And (laughs) this is such a terrible thing, like I said, to admit, but I was willing to try this because nothing else had worked. Isn't that terrible, you know? (laughs) As you mentioned, a last resort in the last hour. Yep. Yep. I associated Christians as strange people who did strange things because that had been my previous, you know, association. Anyway, look, we started going to church together and um, probably quite similar to what Alice posted on Facebook. I think conservatively it took me five years from the time I committed to becoming a Christian to walk into freedom. And so I guess I want anyone out there listening who is relating to this, you know, to know that I didn't suddenly just wake up one day and everything was okay. It was a long, long battle and I came against opposition and setbacks. And actually, it's interesting, Neil, um, last night I was um, I run a recovery meeting here in our town and um, a family friend was, um, you know, saying to me before it, she said, you know, it's hard to imagine, Shan, that two years ago we actually all thought you would not make it. We were convinced you would be dead before the year was out. You know, it's it's extraordinary. It is absolutely extraordinary. But I guess the point being, this this is a story that's taken years and years and years of <laughs> some pretty hard battles. But ultimately, ultimately, it's ended in an incredible miracle. You know, we are um, taking calls on one eight hundred three sixteen three sixteen. Let's hear from Naomi in Queensland. Hello, Naomi. Welcome along to twenty twenty. Hello to the both of you. Thanks. I was just um, working from home. I'm out in regional Queensland, and and it was like it was like you were speaking. Um, I felt like a Queensland version of you. <laughs> um, yeah, in so many ways. Right from um, yeah, growing up in a, a very small community in a farming community, and then going to boarding school, and um, having alcohol normalised all through that life. And also then later, of course, at the uni um, with, the, with the binge drinking culture and also feeling a moment of acceptance for the first time in my life as well. Um, so I can really relate to what you're saying, Shannon. And I was just listening before and you've actually answered my question. I've come full circle <laughs> after being put off. Um, um, I had a really beautiful um, mentor with my grandmother and my aunt. So I was really fortunate to have um, that beautiful, heartfelt love of Jesus. Um, but it was a bit squashed with all the doctrine at school. And, I mean, we, yeah, we just, it, it sort of felt like all the love was taken out of it. Um, and that's what kind of put me off, really. So thank, I just wanted to say thank you. <laughs> You're probably oh. reaching out to so many people at the moment. <laughs> oh, 
That's awesome. Thank you. I'm so glad that you called in. This is this is. I prayed for this, so I couldn't be more um, honoured that that's connected with you. I think there's a lot of us in the same boat. <laughs> yeah, and it's just it's so pervasive. It's so true. It's so normalised. Yeah. Um, yeah. The drinking culture. It's the real. It's almost iconic, and it's it's really hard to break away from that. Especially, I went away to the city to work, and I came back to be closer to my parents now. And <laughs> the drinking culture is still, still as um, <laughs> heavy as it was. I mean, it is in the city as well, but there's just more of an identity formation yeah. here. Um, it's like what people do, and and I've had to be really careful with my my friendships coming back into the circle again because I can feel getting pulled into that circle again and it's it's Mm. hard to break away once you're back in. Absolutely. Mm. Naomi from Queensland. Naomi, thank you so much uh, for your input today here on 2020 and uh, you can just hear the emotion there in Shanna. Uh, This Mm. brings out though uh, something of the essence of what we were talking about as our our theme or our focus today and that Mm. is the difference between the city and the bush and uh, I'll just say a farewell thank you so much to Naomi. But, Shanna, when we talk about uh, the city and the bush, why is it harder in the bush to get on top of an alcohol addiction, an alcohol problem, than it is in the city? What are your thoughts, Shanna? Yeah, that's such a great question, Neil. Um, look, I think it purely comes down to ratios. Um, in the city, there's just such a dense, dense ever-expanding ever population that therefore, purely by numbers, is there are so many health professionals and a broad variety of people that are professionals. Then you head out west or, you know, north, whatever you want to call it, and suddenly those numbers are just shrunk to teeny tiny populations. So I'm not saying alcoholism is any different in the country or the city. It's the same disease. It wears a million faces in a, dif- in a million different places. But in the country, I believe because of, you know, we, we don't have as much access to, look, it might be, gosh, sport, concerts, theatre, uh, stimulation, you know, external stimulation. What we have out here tends to be similarly um, placed across whatever regional town or area you are and those activities tend to revolve around getting together with mates over sporting activities and inevitably things end up at the pub or end up on the veranda with beers. It's just, that's just the Aussie culture and I'm, I'm not here for one moment to suggest that's not a great culture. Like Aussies are known for their wonderful laid-back spirit and their their ability to just make fun out of nothing but the problem is somebody who is predisposed to addiction or, you know, starts to drink as a form of self-medication, you put someone like that in an, in, an alcohol-heavy um, environment and it's a very disastrous scenario for somebody because you almost can't escape it on a regional or country level. Um, honestly, I can't tell you of an event or a thing that happens in this town without alcohol. Um, it's just centre, it's front centre stage for everything all the time. And I hope I hope that that clarifies that question for you. And Shanna, when you are in a country town and you realise you've got an alcohol problem and you want mm. to deal with it, uh, everybody knows you. 
everybody knows yeah. the ones you're talking to. Everybody knows you've got a, an issue and a problem and uh, all yeah. eyes are on Shanna. Was that the way you felt? Yeah. 100%. Um, 100%. It was an insidious sort of a progression for me. Um, and I probably at this time should add that I thought alcoholism meant you were a homeless person in the gutter with holes in your coat and a scotch bottle in your hand that drank all day, every day. Um, there's a lot of ignorance and there's a lot of lack, horrible, horrible lack of education about the true face of alcoholism. And the true face of alcoholism is me, um, I believe, in a country setting. I'm not saying there are not far worse um, uh, illustrations of it, but a huge portion of the population relates to me because it's so, so common. And, um, you know, just getting, getting back to your question, you sort of, you cruise through life in the country sector and you are, or somebody like me, hugely high-functioning, uh, quite public. Um, you know, I've been on stage and done all sorts of interesting things. Um, but ultimately, I was living a double life. I was confident, vibrant, capable Shanna by day, but by night, I was an utter, utter train smash of a human being. I was completely, my soul was just empty and in so much pain. And um, But, yeah, it was just too easy for me to, um, you know, hide that for a while. But ultimately, in a small country town setting, if you do something silly enough times in a public setting, which that's what began to happen with me, you know, the reputation of being a wild party girl is all fun and games when you're 20 and cute. And that's what everyone does. But suddenly, when you're in your late 30s, it's not cute anymore. And you are noticed. And it does stand out. And uh, people do one of two things. They either offer you more alcohol or, you know, they reach out to try and help you. But I can tell you the greater portion of people offers you more alcohol and says, oh, it's okay. You've been through hell. You're allowed to drink. Does that make sense? It makes sense. And we'll continue our conversation in just a few moments. Uh, Shanna Wan is our guest. Uh, Shanna has a Facebook page, and uh, you can simply uh, go to Facebook, Shanna Wan, W-H-A-N. And, uh, of course, there is a website too, uh, allthingsskwhub.com. We'll give those addresses again shortly. But we'll be back to continue our conversation in just a few moments. Visions 2020 with Neil Johnson, a biblical perspective on life, culture and current events. Talking about the true face of everyday alcoholism from country to coast, Shanna Wan is our guest. I mentioned there is a Facebook page, Shanna Wan. Well, if you go to Shanna K Wan, W-H-A-N hyphen health uh, you'll be able to go straight to uh, some of the uh, the content there about uh, the issue that we're talking about today. Shanna, let me just take you to something because we're running a little bit of sh- short of time now. The idea of being uh, addicted to alcohol, how much of an addiction is related to the physical idea of disease or is there a different connection that you've come up with that is an issue of the heart? Tell me about the, the heart issues when it comes to addiction to alcohol. Yeah, absolutely. Um, look, I mean, obviously I'm not a GP or a scientist, <laughs> but uh, I tell you what, I've lived through it and I feel like I can make you know honest comments and um, I have done a heck of a lot of study and work in the area and... Um, I believe alcohol is a four-pronged disease and um, recovery programs speak about this. It's not just physical, 
it is also emotional and it's spiritual and it's mental. And um, it's, it's a lethal killer, really, because it begins so, you know, so innocently, I guess. But it's, it's a progressive and it's a fatal disease and it kills good people every day. And like we said in the intro, people, people jump up and down and get hysterical about ice and what's happening in our rural towns with ice. But for every single ice-related death, there are 60 alcohol-related deaths. And, uh, you know, and that, I believe, is because it's not something you just diagnose and treat and give someone a tablet for and send them home. It is a, it is a monster of a thing that requires a huge amount of time and energy and effort and support. And in my honest, humble opinion, despite the best efforts, that is really, really lacking in a regional setting because... Sadly enough, the people most uh, helpful to somebody like me are people who have walked it and talked it and experienced it and lived it. And, um, you know, the huge problem is most people who have recovered from alcoholism do so very quietly or they're so exhausted from recovery that they're just doing their best to stay afloat and they don't have energy left to do things for others. Um, You know, so we have a very, very limited um, resource out there for people to seek help and a lot of people are terrified of the stigma they're terrified of 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 recovery programs they're terrified of asking for help and that is the tragedy so many people die because they don't know they're fighting a disease it's like it's like um calling someone an idiot for having cancer you know it comes down to a lot of miseducation um and a choice that was once a choice becomes an addiction and it becomes a, a disease and um it's the saddest thing in the world now. It's awful. It's killing a lot of people, you know, and it nearly killed me. And that's that's why I'm here today. I'm just praying and hoping that I can help uh, start to change the awareness on this issue, you know, and the stigma. Now, recovery programs, uh, this is mm-hmm. a well-known uh, way to freedom from alcoholism. Uh, where does the faith aspect fit into recovery programs? I mean, I know that many recovery programs and one that most people will be familiar with, the AA, there's a lot Mm -hmm. of very strong spiritual and uh, some will say uh, biblical foundation to uh, the 12 Mm. steps in the AA program. But when we talk about recovery programs in general, how do you fit your faith in there, the dimension that your faith in God brings to actually those things in a recovery program being meaningful? Yeah, sure. Gosh, that's that's a good one. Um, look, in my opinion, um, a recovery program will only ever be successful for someone who is willing to wholeheartedly go into that in full surrender. And um, oh, gee, this, that's a hard that's a hard question with a long answer. But ultimately, for me, I don't believe I would have had freedom without faith. Um, I'll give an example of that. Uh, There are a lot of people all across the globe who don't drink, who are sober, but they are what we call dry drunks. They haven't had relief from what is known as the obsession and the madness of the disease. And there are a far smaller percentage of people like me who are incredibly fortunate people who have been set free from even having any thoughts about alcohol. That's actually very rare. And I think that that for me, came down to faith. Um, I, I, a lot of people within recovery programs will stand up, for example, in a group and say, hi, my name's Shanna and I'm an alcoholic, blah, blah, blah. Whereas I stand up and I say, hi, my name's Shanna and I'm a recovered alcoholic because Jesus intervened 
and he did the work. <laughs> and I'm really quite serious about that. I, I don't believe it was me for a moment. Me trying, me trying to get well in my own strength and my own will is what very nearly killed me. And so, you know, when people say, oh, Shana, you're amazing, you're so strong, your willpower is incredible, I go, no, 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 you can't think that. And, and I promise you that's not the truth. My willpower is what nearly set me to, you know, my death. Um, I couldn't do it on my own. It was surrender and it was Christ. That's how it worked. Surrender there is the key. And so if we're talking about a day-to-day routine, I know you try to pray every morning. What about Mm. that that relationship you have with Jesus, with the relationship that you have with him and and the necessity of actually being someone who will pray every morning? Absolutely. Um, you know what? I still, I still think I'm a pretty bad example of a Christian. Some days I'm a bit of a dag. I've got a bit of a cheeky sense of humour. I'm, I'm not a role model citizen. In, in, but I think I'm very real and I'm very authentic. And I do begin my days. Um, I go, I take Fleabag, the cattle dog, for a run, and I talk to God and I say, "Thank you, God. I'm sober today. Today is awesome. I'm, a, I'm alive. This is a miracle." <laughs> It's pretty awesome, I've got to tell you, after wanting to not be alive for a long time. And, um, yeah, look, I just talked to God and I, and I believe that um, I put everything on the line. Um, I walked in faith, I guess, um, in the sense that, um, look, I, I pretty much bankrupted myself to get well. Um, I spent <laughs> all of my beautiful husband's savings and family money and mine on recovery and getting well, I wasn't able to work, but I just kept walking in faith and I made a commitment that once I was well, I would give it all back to other people. Um, and so faith and God and being in, in prayer and uh, um, giving, giving God the credit, giving Jesus the credit is first and foremost every time because it wasn't me. And uh, I'd, that's the key message. I couldn't do it. He could. <laughs> yeah. Shanna, you know. just want to honour your courageous approach. And, you know, uh, for anyone who has battled alcoholism, uh, every day is going to present uh, those battles that will continue on. Uh, but being a recovered, uh, past tense alcoholic is a great way to be able to uh, to talk about where you are at the present time, that surrender and that uh, daily mm. routine I'm sure that people will want to uh, make contact with you. And let me just uh, give the Facebook page where people can uh, see some of the things that you've written uh, with when it comes to uh, health issues like this. Shanna, which is spelt S-H-A-N-N-A-K-1, W-H-A-N, and hyphen health. Uh, that's where you can find uh, that direct connection there to Shanna on her Facebook page. And, uh, Shanna, that is the best way, isn't it, to, to be in touch with you? Yeah, look, I think so, Neil. And then I'm more than happy to phone people or communicate by email. Um, it's just a great way to get, get the ball rolling. And if anyone loses um, those details, perhaps they could contact the station. Um, you know, at, at the end of the day, really, I'm not an answer to anybody. What I am is a conduit, I guess, of information and a story of how it can end well. Um you know, and I think that's possibly a great message to pass on as we wrap up the show. I, I would, I would, um, you know, I would love to say to somebody sitting out there who might be listening today, I'm nothing more than a broken vessel that got used 
as I, I would love to, well, I think of myself as a way Jesus turned something broken into something hopeful to inspire hope in others who think that, you know, the show's over. But there is a big road ahead when it comes to recovery, whether you're just a bit of a problem drinker or, you know, you're at the end stages and, and really in big trouble like I was. There is so much hope out there, Neil, and the best way to get that hope is to step away from the darkness and the deception that we live in when we fall back to alcohol to solve our problems. And this is, I guess, I don't mean that to sound preachy, but when you step out of that darkness and into the light of honesty and surrender and asking, just reach out and ask for help. And even if that person is me, that's awesome. You know, don't think it's weak because in surrender lies the paradox of strength, if that makes sense. You know? It is so, wonderful wisdom, Shanna. And uh, mm. to mention too that you have some plans. You'd like to take your personal story across rural Australia and uh, there might be people in churches and you're in New South Wales, in Narrabri, but uh, but uh, wherever uh, you might be listening today, right across this nation, uh, you might like to contact Shanna. You just never know when she'll be in your neck of the woods and uh, an opportunity mm. to share her story for you. Now, uh, so the Facebook page, Shanna K1 hyphen health. Uh, Shanna, just a pleasure hearing your story and uh, honour you again, just your courage. Uh, You are a wonderful woman and, uh, you know, my prayer and I'm sure those listening to our conversation will be that God will take you from strength to strength and that opportunities and doors will open for you to share your story wherever you go. Thank you so much for being with us on 2020. Yeah, it was an absolute pleasure, Neil. You're a great interviewer and I, I enjoyed that tremendously and thanks so much for giving me a chance to reach out to some people. I can't thank you enough. Before you go, thanks for listening. There's lots more great audio on demand, or you can listen to us live at visionradio.org.au. And remember, Vision is listener-supported. Your donation, large or small, will help us continue connecting faith to life for hundreds of thousands of people across Australia and around the world. Learn more or donate today at visionradio.org.au.